The text for today's sermon, the main text is Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13, verse 4. Romans chapter 13, verse 4, and I'll also be looking briefly at Deuteronomy 16 as well as several other places, but our main text is Romans 13, verse 4, and really the, the last half of the verse where we read this in Romans 13, 4. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Again, Romans 13:4, part B. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Today we begin a series on the Avengers. Of course, we're not speaking of Stanley's superheroes, of Captain America and Thor and Iron Man, but we are speaking of God's Avengers. Now, what they should have in common, however, is that they are both tasked with dealing with evil in the world. The Bible, in our text, describes the civil ruler, describes the magistrate as a servant of God, an avenger of God, who is tasked with punishing evil according to God's standard, and who is tasked with carrying out God's wrath on the evil doer. Now, you don't have to turn there, but I also want to read for you from Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 18, where Moses tells the people, You shall appoint judges and officers in all your towns that the Lord your God is giving you, according to your tribes, and here's the key point, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. They shall judge the people with righteous judgment. My argument this morning is that what God requires of civil rulers in the New Testament is not substantially different from what he required of civil rulers in the Old Testament. You see, Deuteronomy 16.18 requires that rulers or judges or magistrates are to rule or judge with righteous judgment. And Romans 13 here, and also 1 Peter 2, which we'll discuss briefly later, require that rulers, judges, and magistrates judge or rule according to God's standard of evil. It's the same thing. To judge righteously is the same as punishing evil according to God's standard. Now, you may be asking, why are we still focused on government and civil rulers? We preached about this last week, and isn't the election over now? Shouldn't we go back to focusing on spiritual matters, and then in four years from now, we can all of a sudden say, oh, this is the most important election of our lifetime, which people will say again, of course, in four years. And then we can make a whole bunch of arguments clothed in Christian speak at that point. So should we just focus on the church and spiritual matters now for the next four years and forget this stuff? Of course, if you know me, you know that my position has nothing to do with the current political climate. It is not motivated by the changing times at all. After all, there is nothing new under the sun. And the socio-political problems facing us today are not substantially different from those in the past. And they're not going to be that different four years from now. It's always going to come down to God's law or man's law. So here are three reasons we ought to seriously consider government and civil rulers from a Christian perspective, regardless of what's going on around us. Number one, the Bible teaches on government and civil rulers. If the Bible teaches on it, it's important for us to consider it and apply it. Number two, and number one is really enough, but number two, all people must learn to obey Jesus. All people are called to obey Jesus. That includes civil rulers. Of course, we preach and teach about what God requires of pastors and fathers, even though not all people are called to be pastors or fathers. Not all all people are called to be civil rulers, but we still teach on the concept because all people need to know how to obey Jesus. And number three, teaching on all areas that the Bible teaches on help us to test our worldview for internal consistency. If we cannot apply the word of God to a certain area of life consistently, then we have a problem and we need to address it. Now, last week, as I said, was an election sermon wherein we considered the requirement to vote for men who fear God. My argument was that Exodus 18.21 does indeed apply to electing civil rulers today. We are to choose men who fear God and love truth. 
Now, in response to a message like that, a lot of objections are often raised. And some of those objections I want to list now. And I want to thank, you know, different people have provided these, some directly to me, some indirectly. And it is important to consider these matters, and it's good to discuss these matters within the church and to debate them vigorously and to look to Scripture for the answer. So here's some objections um, that could be raised against the points made last week. Objection number one to the idea that we are to vote for men who, who fear God and love the truth. Objection number one is that we don't live in a theocracy, so we're not required to choose our leaders that way. Objection number two, that was the Old Testament. We follow the New Testament. Objection number three, the people didn't even choose the leaders. Moses did. Objection number four, we don't need to consider biblical qualifications for civil rulers because we don't have biblical qualifications for other vocations, a supervisor, an electrician, a plumber, a firefighter. firefighter. So we shouldn't use biblical qualifications for rulers either. Objection number five, we are not required to vote for Christians for civil office. If we could only vote for Christians for civil office, that would be very unrealistic. Objection number six, the requirements for civil rulers to fear God and love the truth only apply to the government of a nation in covenant with God. It's the objection that civil rulers from pagan nations are not in covenant with God. Therefore, they are not required to govern according to his revealed law word in the Old and New Testaments. They're not required to fear God and rule justly according to his law word. That's objection six. Objection seven is that if you require civil rulers and governments to rule according to God's law word, that would logically mean that government is for believers only. However, the argument goes, the restraining grace of government is not for believers only, but also for unbelievers. Should non-Christian nations around the world not have governments because they're not Christian governments? and thus be deprived of a major mechanism by which uh, sin and crime can be restrained. By the same logic, the argument goes, uh, we should not have marriage or family as well. Yet marriage, family, and government were all established pre-Mosaic law. So that's an objection. Objection eight. Paul seemed to think that even the pagan Roman government could achieve the basic function of government, punish evil, restrain good, which would allow the church to peaceably pursue godliness. And Daniel certainly had a clear conscience about acting as a wise counselor for a pagan king. Therefore, the objection states, isn't it clear that civil rulers are not required to follow God's law word as those civil rulers of Israel were? And objection number nine, any requirements in scripture for a king or autocrat are very different than a president of a bicameral government where the power is intentionally diffused among the three branches. There's no king in a republic, and so we're dealing with different categories here. Now, there are certainly more objections than these, but I do believe all these objections and more can be adequately and logically refuted from a biblical worldview based on Scripture, of course. I will not address all of these today. In fact, some, I believe, really were addressed last week, but my plan is to address all of these and more by the time this series is over. But I wanted to state them up front so that you know we'll get to them eventually. Now, as this is the first part of a series on civil rulers, I want to attempt to at least set up a bit of a framework. All right, There are a lot of ways we can approach this topic of God's law being applied to the government and civil rulers. Now, the position that I argue for is generally termed theonomy, which means God's law. It is somewhat unfortunate that the term theonomy is almost exclusively associated with civil government, however. You see, civil government is one part of human society, and it is a very important part, but it's just one part. And, and theonomy deals with much more than civil government. However, since the Bible does apply to all of life, the civil government is certainly not out of bounds, and we need to consider from Scripture how to view civil government. But let me briefly quote Greg Bonson here regarding theonomy, just to give you an understanding of the overall position. Bonson says this, Theonomists are committed to the transformation of every area of life, every area, including the institutions and affairs of the socio-political realm, according to the holy principles of God's revealed word. So all of life must be transformed according to God's word. He also says the position which has come to be labeled theonomy today thus holds that the word of the Lord is the sole, supreme, 
an unchallengeable standard for the actions and attitudes of all men in all areas of life. Our obligation to keep God's commands cannot be judged by any extra-biblical standard, such as whether its specific requirements, when properly interpreted, are congenial to past traditions or modern feelings and practices. So basically saying the Bible and the Bible alone is the standard for righteousness. We cannot use something outside of the Bible to judge whether or not the Bible, what the Bible requires is just, whether that's our own feelings, traditions, or modern practices. And he also says, finally, we should presume that Old Testament standing laws continue to be morally binding in the New Testament unless they are rescinded or modified by further revelation. Now, when I speak today about the responsibility of God's avengers, of the civil rulers to follow God's law, I'm referring referring to God's moral law. Now, when you think about the laws that God has gave, given to us regarding our interactions with one another, so how we relate to one another in society, these are societal or civil laws. These are all applications of the moral law. For example, the moral law says, thou shalt not steal. Okay? Thou shalt not steal. The civil law... An application of this moral law says what happens when the thief is caught in society. The the civil law says the thief must make restitution. He must pay back the person he has stolen from. This is a matter of justice and righteousness. If the thief is punished by execution, if the thief is killed because he has stolen something, has justice been done? Not according to scripture. Or if the thief is required to be locked up, and the, the victims required to pay for the thief to have three meals a day and cable television. Instead of making restitution, the thief is required to be locked up. Has justice been done? You see, there is a biblical answer to this question because we have the civil laws in the Bible, which are applications of the moral law. You see, God didn't just give us the moral law and then leave it to us and leave it to our civil rulers to figure out what to do with thieves or murderers or rapists or kidnappers. You see that the command, the moral law, thou shalt not murder, is the moral law. But what should be the societal consequence for murder? A fine? Is that just? Is that righteous if a murder is fined? $500? You see, my position is that civil rulers are required to follow God's revealed law word as it relates to the moral law in society. Thus, they are required to follow the civil laws, which are applications of the moral law. Now, I can't go into great... uh, I can't get into this in great detail today because I want to focus on civil rulers. But I wanted to lay a bit of a a framework here. You see, some people object and say, there's no distinction between moral or ceremonial laws or civil laws in the Bible. And I think that's clearly false. The ceremonial law in Scripture is clearly in a category of its own. This is an important point. That's why you have numerous cases when God condemns people in the Bible for failing to follow the moral law and the application of the moral law in society, following after justice and righteousness, punishing evil, even though these people adhere to the ceremonial law. You don't often find indictments from God against his people due to their zealousness to apply his law and their zealousness to see righteousness and justice done in society to prevent the shedding of innocent blood and ensure that justice is done to all people but yet they're unwilling to follow his ceremonial law. You don't usually see that. For example, let me give you a couple examples. Turn to Amos, Amos chapter 5. Turn to Amos chapter 5 and consider this this point. Amos chapter 5, beginning in verse 18. Amos 5, 18. Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. What will the day of the Lord be for you? It will be darkness and not light. It will be like a man who flees from a lion only to have a bear confront him. He goes home and rests his hand against the wall only to have a snake bite him. Won't the day of the Lord be darkness rather than light, even gloom without any brightness in it? I hate, I despise your feasts. I can't stand the stench of your solemn assemblies. Right? These are ceremonial aspects of their uh, obedience. Even if you offer me your burnt offerings, 
which are required ceremonially, and your grain offerings. I will not accept them. I will have no regard for your fellowship offerings of fattened cattle. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. But, but, let justice flow like water and righteousness like an unfailing stream. You see, the indictment here that God gives to his people is that even though the ceremonial law may have been followed, the moral law was being disregarded in society. Justice and righteousness were not being done in society. God's law, his moral law, wasn't being followed by the people in society. Again, one more passage to turn to to show you this theme. Turn to Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1, we see the same theme, and I'm going to begin in verse 12. Isaiah 1, verse 12. Now let's start in verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Which, by the way, let me stop there for a moment. We'll talk about this later. But here, um, God's using Sodom and Gomorrah as uh, an indictment against his people, comparing them to those rulers. And, of course, God judged Sodom and Gomorrah for their failure to follow his righteous standards, even if they weren't, quote-unquote, in covenant with him. But more on that later. Verse 11. What are all your sacrifices to me, asks the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings and rams and the fat of well-fed cattle. I have no desire for the blood of bulls, lambs, or male goats. Again, these are ceremonial aspects of the law. When you come to appear before me, who requires this from you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing useless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons and Sabbaths and the calling of solemn assemblies, I cannot stand iniquity with a festival. I hate your new moons and prescribed festivals. They have become a burden to me. I am tired of putting up with them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will refuse to look at you. Even if you offer countless prayers, I will not listen. Why? Your hands are covered with blood. And what does he call them to do then? Wash yourselves, cleanse yourselves, remove your evil deeds from my sight. Stop doing evil. Learn to do what is good. Pursue justice. Correct the oppressor. Defend the rights of the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. You see, again, the indictment is regarding their failure to follow the moral law of God in society, their failure to pursue justice in society, to correct and punish the oppressor, to defend the rights of the fatherless, to plead the widow's cause. These are matters of righteousness and justice in society. Even if the ceremonial law was followed, God indicts them for their failure to follow the moral law in society. Now, it makes sense that the moral law is going to appear is going to appear again and again in Scripture, in terms of civil or social justice. And I don't have a problem using that term biblically, because society is simply humans interacting with one another. So the indictment of God against people is going to often appear in terms of their relationships to one another in society and their failure to follow God's law in society. Any sort of of oppression or injustice in society can only occur, listen to this, it can only occur if God's law is not followed. Think about it. If everyone in society followed the Ten Commandments, would there be any problems between people? Now, we could still say there's natural disasters and things like that because of the fall. But if everyone followed the moral law of God in society, there would be no problems between people. You see, the Westminster divines correctly understood that the various applications of the Ten Commandments apply to all of life. Read through the catechism sometimes. You'll see that, for example, with murder, the command to not murder, an application of that would be not to strike, wound, or do anything that tends to the destruction of the life of any. You see, God's law applies the moral law and applies this to these various crimes. And that's why you see in Scripture the punishment for murder is different than the punishment for hitting someone and injuring them. If God's law were followed in society, there would be peace, righteousness, and justice. Now, the distinction 
the distinction between the ceremonial and, and religious activities and, and that of justiceness and righteousness is a distinction which appears in Scripture and in the Reformed uh, tradition. So if ceremonial laws, excuse me, if the civil laws of Israel are applications of the moral law, then we would say that if certain specifics which apply to Israel have expired with the state of that institution, the moral equity or the justice of those civil laws remain. You see, murder, theft, rape, kidnapping were not problems unique to Old Testament Israel. Those are problems that occur in every society. So the moral law of God applied to society and those civil laws that deal with murder, rape, kidnapping, theft still apply. However, if the ceremonial law is in another category, we could rightly say that the ceremonial laws are no longer binding on us. In fact, the confession goes further and says that the ceremonial laws were a yoke or a burden. So what I want to do now, and I know this is maybe considered by some to be a bit academic, but this is very important that we understand these concepts. Uh, when, we, when we throw around these terms, we have to understand what we're talking about. So in your handout, you have... Uh, portions of the Baptist Confession of Faith of 1689. And if you look at that handout, I want to walk you through it very briefly and explain some of these concepts. In chapter 19 on the law of God, section 1, we see that the moral law of God was written on Adam's heart. It says God gave to Adam a law of universal obedience written on his heart. heart. Okay. In, in section 2, it says this same law that was first written on the heart of man continued to be a perfect rule of righteousness after the fall and was delivered by God upon Mount Sinai in Ten Commandments. So the moral law of God was not introduced on Sinai by Moses. The moral law of God, a reflection of his standard, of his righteousness, has existed from eternity because it is a reflection of who God is. The Ten Commandments restated what was already the eternal moral law of God. Now, section three, it says, besides the moral law, God also gave ceremonial laws, which have been taken away, which have been taken away. He also gave them sundry judicial laws which expired with the state of Israel, but their general equity is still of moral use. All right, that's an important uh, point there. The general equity of these judicial laws are still of moral use. That's chapter 19, section 4. Now, chapter 19, section 5, where it says, The moral law doth forever bind all, as well justified persons as others to the obedience thereof forever binds all that's an important topic we'll come back to now here's the interesting thing to think about if the civil were the civil laws of israel a burden to the people in order to say that the civil laws of israel the judicial laws which i'm arguing are application of the moral law in order to say that those were a burden and a yoke you'd have to say that it was a burden and a yoke on the people that murderers were punished, thieves had to make restitution, rapists and kidnappers were punished. You'd have to say that those punishments were not just. Quite frankly, it's an absurd thing to say. We read in Hebrews that every punishment received a just retribution. The writers of the confession never refer to the civil laws as a burden or a yoke on the people. So a lot of people today will say, well, well, we're freed from the law, from the law, Old Testament law, Mosaic law, and it was a burden and a yoke, and we're free from that. The Reformed Confession, the, the, the Westminster Divines never viewed the civil law of God as a burden or a yoke, because to do so would say that the punishments that God gave in society for punishing evil were burdensome to the people. What the Confession does say, however, in chapter 21 is that Christians are freed from the yoke of the ceremonial law. So they view the ceremonial law as something that was somewhat of a burden, if you will, having to go through all these sacrifices, all these rituals, year after year, having to follow all these prescribed requirements in order to appear before God in a sense of, of cleanness. They do view that 
as a burden and a yoke that has expired with the coming of Christ. But the civil laws are never viewed as a burden or a yoke because to view them as a burden would be to suggest that they were uh, burdensome, that they were harsh, that they were uh, not proper for society. The Reformed writers never view them as a burden. Clearly in Scripture and in the Reformed tradition, there is this distinction between the moral, the civil, and the ceremonial. And clearly the Reformed writers never viewed the civil laws as burdensome. Now my position is that the civil laws which deal specifically with moral laws are very clearly matters of societal justice and as such are still required today. As I mentioned, murder, theft, rape, kidnapping, false witness, these are all still issues today. They were not unique to Old Testament Israel. They're still issues today. The civil punishment for kidnapping, which is a violation of the Eighth Commandment of thou shalt not steal, is a moral matter. It's not a ceremonial matter. Justice requires that an appropriate punishment be meted out for that crime. Without the standard of God's law, we do not know what that punishment should be. Now, does this mean that there is a clear answer to every single civil issue? Perhaps not. But to say that since some things require us to take the general principles of Scripture and make a decision... To say that that means we should reject the things which are clear is a very weak argument. It's a very weak argument. See, the Bible is very clear that a thief should make restitution and a duly convicted murderer should be executed. And that a convicted rapist or kidnapper or adulterer should be executed. That the Bible might not be as clear on another matter does not negate where it is clear. We can then take the clear principles and apply them to the less clear. That's a principle of biblical interpretation that applies here. Let me add this, one more thing, before we get into really the, the meat of the sermon. The fact that there are differences among theonomists does not negate the overarching principle. If that were the case, the fact that Reformed Christians disagree on baptism or the Lord's Supper or church membership or the end times would mean that our principle relating to applying God's word is fundamentally flawed. Christians disagree about how to apply New Testament passages. That doesn't mean we throw up our hands and say, well, since people who say they agree that the New Testament is authoritative, since they can't even agree on the New Testament's application, therefore their position that the New Testament is authoritative must be fundamentally flawed. That's illogical. It's a non sequitur. It doesn't follow because there are differences among people who agree to a principle that the principle is flawed. It does not follow that because men have differences or come to different conclusions on challenging passages that their main principle is flawed. Now, be that as it may, I'm not offering an extensive summary of the theonomic position today. Rather, I'm seeking to apply the general principle to one area, civil rulers. And again, this is just part one of that. So in doing so, we're going to look at an aspect of our Christian worldview and we're going to apply the general principle, and I believe we can have more and more of an overall picture when we do that, when we take certain areas of life and apply our overall view of Scripture to that area. You see, wisdom is justified by all her children, and how we apply our worldview and the logical consequences of that worldview and the applications is very telling about our worldview and if it's consistent. So my position as we get into this is that civil rulers are required to rule According to the law of God, as Steve Wilkins put it in a very good sermon on theonomy, and I'm paraphrasing him here, he said, God's law word is a sufficient rule of life. The only way we are to know how to be faithful, whether that is a faithful father, a faithful mother, a faithful child, faithful baker, faithful electrician, or a faithful civil ruler, the only way we can know if we are doing right is to know God's law. God's law is the only rule of life for both private and civil matters. Therefore, as all men are required to obey God and follow his law, the civil ruler is not exempt from this requirement. Now, in the remaining time, I want to make three points, and you have them listed there on your handout. Civil rulers are God's avengers, tasked with punishing evil according to God's standard. That's number one. Number two, God's law was always meant to be followed by the civil rulers of all nations. And number three, God's rulers are, in a sense, in covenant with God, as all people are, 
in the sense that their obedience, their complete obedience is required. So point number one, civil rulers are God's avengers and his servants tasked with punishing evil according to God's standard. Romans 13.4 says the civil ruler is God's servant, right? Stop there for a second and think about that. A lot of times uh, I think the passages by Peter and Paul regarding civil rulers are misinterpreted, or at least the main focus is only partial, or they're missing part of it. The main focus when, when these passages are taught is often simply on submission to civil rulers, and that's an important part of a biblical worldview. How should we respond to civil rulers? And I preached a whole sermon from 1 Peter that you can listen to on sermon audio regarding what this submission entails, what it means to submit to the civil government. But that's not my focus today. And all I say, everything I say today doesn't negate that. So don't uh, make that mistake in thinking that. But my focus today is on what is not on what is required of citizens, but what is required of God's avengers, what is required of the civil rulers. What is often neglected in these passages is the the prescriptive nature of them. The way many people preach these passages, Romans 13, it would make you, you think that Nero, who was the Roman emperor at the time, would make you think that he would have been quite happy with Paul's words. Well, Nero wouldn't have been happy with these words. First reason is that Nero, as a civil ruler, is called a servant, a slave of God. In Roman thought, and in many societies after, the supreme ruler was viewed as a God, accountable to no one. So for Nero to be told, you are a servant of God, would not have pleased him. So the way this passage is often preached, it's only focused on submission to authority as if that's all that it teaches. This passage teaches a lot about what's required of the civil ruler. And this idea that Nero and others had that they're accountable to no one, this passage flies in the face of that. Now, the divine rights of kings is a twist on on that view that the supreme ruler is accountable to no one. The divine rights of king was the position that because kings derive their power directly from God, they're accountable to to no one. They're accountable to no one. Now, an application of biblical law and history led to many great blessings that we take for granted today, but one such event was the Magna Carta, which built on the principle that God's law rules over all men, even kings. Of course, the Magna Carta is viewed as a great turning point in history when rulers were held accountable for their actions. And I have a quote here from an historian who says that Sir Edward Edward Coke, Chief Justice of the Court of Common Pleas, challenged King James I that Magna Carta gave the courts of common law the right to provide justice from the highest to the lowest because the king was under God and the law. You could have no power at all against me unless it has been given you from above, John 19.11. All civil authority is delegated by God and answerable to God. Very clearly in Romans 13, the role of the civil leader is presented as one who is to bring wrath on the one who does wrong. He carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Now, let me ask you a very obvious question. If the civil ruler is to carry out God's wrath on the wrongdoer, who is the one that determines what is wrong? Clearly, it must be God. Otherwise, the civil ruler could execute Christians for their faith, as they did in the first century and as they do today. They could arrest midwives for helping mothers give birth, as they did in the past and even, sadly, still do today. And they could encourage the murder of babies, as they did in the past and still do today. And no one could question them if their job is to carry out their own wrath on the wrongdoer according to what they say is wrong. Furthermore, the wrath here in Romans 13, when it says that they're an avenger that brings wrath on the one who does wrong, the wrath here is very clearly a reference to the civil sanction, the civil punishment for the wrong. Again, who determines this punishment? Is it 
Is it God's wrath that a thief be executed or that his hand be cut off? No, that would be man's wrath. And we have had that happen in human history. The thieves were executed. You see, this passage is prescriptive. That means it prescribes how things ought to be. It tells us what civil rulers ought to do, not what they often do. Paul knew that civil rulers often murder, execute the righteous. That is such a clear theme in Scripture that it should almost go without saying. And furthermore, as Reformed Christians, our doctrine of total depravity should remind us very clearly that just because someone becomes a civil ruler, that does not mean they are going to act, or in this case, rule righteously by default. Paul is not saying that the civil ruler, when he punishes, is always carrying out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. That would be absurd, because civil rulers often punish the righteous and praise the evil. This is a prescriptive passage by Paul telling us what has God ordained and instituted the office of the magistrate for. Civil rulers in Paul's day and in our day often contradict God's commission for them and punish the righteous. You see, Paul is saying what the civil ruler is commissioned to do. The office, the institution of the magistrate is ordained of God to be a terror to bad conduct, not good. However, as I mentioned, civil rulers, like all others, often rebel against God's law. The point here is this. What does God require of civil rulers? And the answer is that he requires them to follow his standard, his law, in regards to determining what is evil and what the wrath should be on that evildoer. You see, if we understand this passage correctly as prescriptive and not descriptive, we will have a better understanding of this whole question of civil rulers. You see, Paul did believe that government could achieve its basic purpose. This is one of the objections. You know, Paul seemed to believe that government could achieve its basic purpose of punishing evil and protecting good. Paul did believe that government could achieve its basic purpose, but not by default, only by the grace of God. That's why we're called to pray for our rulers, that we may live peaceable lives. If it was by default, we, of course, wouldn't need to pray. Government can achieve its basic purpose of punishing evil, but only by the grace of God. We are to pray that rulers would rule righteously and justly so that we can live peaceable lives. That can only happen when God's law is followed. If the righteous are punished, if civil rulers punish people according to man's standard and man's wrath, you cannot have a peaceable and quiet life as a Christian. Even if perhaps you are safe, what about the murder of other innocents? What about the shedding of innocent blood? What about the millions of babies that are aborted in our land, endorsed by both Democrats and Republicans? That's not a peaceable and quiet life because we know the shedding of innocent blood will bring judgment on the land and all of us will experience that. So Paul did believe the government could achieve its basic purpose, but not by default. That's why we pray that civil rulers would rule justly and righteously. They don't do it by default. They're sinners. Only when God's laws followed. So Paul was not endorsing civil rulers ruling according to their own law. In fact, he clearly rejects this when he says that Nero or any other civil ruler is God's slave, God's deacon, God's servant who is sent by God. Nero is God's errand boy. The governor is God's errand boy sent by God to punish evil according to God's standard. Nero would not have liked that. Again, I preached a whole sermon on this from 1 Peter. And to, to not resist evil often means that we do submit to unjust laws and unjust rulers. But that doesn't mean we or Paul or Peter endorse rulers ruling according to man's law. Because the rulers are required to punish evil. And of course, the obvious question, and I'll say it again, is evil according to what standard? And it must be God's law. So this is why I contend that the requirement from Deuteronomy 16:18 to rule righteously is the same requirement given to civil rulers in Romans chapter 13 and in 1 Peter 2, where they are called to punish evil. Punishing evil righteously, ruling righteously, carrying out God's wrath requires one to follow God's law. 
It's the same requirement in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Folks, it's not possible for us to come up with some standard of righteousness apart from God's law. It's impossible to create a standard of righteousness apart from God's law. I think in many ways this is a rather straightforward concept. I think we often make things more complicated than we need to. And I think that's also uh, something we should consider when we consider our biblical worldview and uh, how we interpret the scriptures. Are we making things more complicated than they have to be? You see, following God's law is not burdensome. It's not complicated. The wayfaring men, though fools, shall not err therein. You see, the alternative to what I have described as the rule of civil rulers is to say that civil rulers, regardless of how they act, are always punishing evil and meeting out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. And I hope you'll see that's absurd because we know of many civil rulers in Scripture and in human history who don't. And I would, in fact, say that most of the time they're not following God's word. Now, I'll talk about how can God use that for good. Yes, we'll talk about that at the end. But very clearly, civil rulers are not always enforcing God's standard and punishing evil according to God's standard. But that is what they are called to do. That's point number one. Point number two is that God's law was always meant to be followed by the civil rulers of all nations. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 4. Deuteronomy chapter 4. And here we read that, The laws God gave to Israel would, as it were, provoke the nations around them to jealousy. Provoke the nations around them to jealousy. Think about that. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 5 through 8, say this. Deuteronomy 4, 5. Look, I have taught you statutes and ordinances as the Lord my God has commanded me, so that you may follow them in the land you are entering to possess. Carefully follow them. For this will show your wisdom and understanding in the eyes of the peoples. When they hear about all these statutes, they will say, This great nation is indeed a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God near to it, as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call to him? And what great nation has righteous statutes and ordinances like this entire law I set before you today? You see, the other nations could recognize God's law as righteous because his moral law was already written on their hearts. Two things to think about here. If God did not require the other nations to enforce biblical law, if God did not require the other nations to enforce biblical law, then you would not see, number one, the recognition that other nations would see the laws of Israel and acknowledge that they are just and righteous. And number two... If God didn't require other nations to enforce his law, God would not call, and this is a very important one, God would not call other nations and civil rulers of other nations to account for violating his law. But we see both things in Scripture. There's a woe in Scripture that we need to think about. Isaiah chapter 10, verse 1. Isaiah chapter 10, verse 1. Isaiah 10, verse 1 says this. Woe to those enacting crooked statutes and writing oppressive laws to keep the poor from getting a fair trial and to deprive the needy among my people of justice so that widows can be their spoil and they can plunder the fatherless. Folks, that woe, that warning, does not simply refer to the civil rulers of Israel in the Old Testament. God's curse, this warning, is on any who would enact crooked statutes or oppressive laws. The only way you can have a standard for what is crooked is if you know what is straight, the law of God, the righteousness of God's law. This is a woe for any nation who will write laws that are contrary to God's law. Now, uh, let me explain this further because you might object. Now, when God indicted the nation of Judah, he gave them a laundry list of reasons why his judgment was coming. You know, read through Jeremiah. I mean, these the reasons for God's judgment, he lists them over and over again. One of the most prominent themes in that judgment was the nation's proclivity to national injustice and violence. Let me just read this, Deuteronomy, or Jeremiah 22, 17. But you have eyes and a heart for nothing except your own dishonest profit, shedding innocent blood and committing extortion and oppression. He also indicted his people for following pagan laws in Micah 6, which we read earlier. The statutes of Omri, 
And all the practices of Ahab's house have been observed. Here's the point. Even when God judged Judah, he also judged the pagan nations. God did not simply judge his people in the Old Testament. He did not simply require those, quote unquote, in covenant with him to obey his law. He judged all nations and he continues to do so today. The, the, this is what God said to the nations around Judah. And we really need to think about this. Listen to what he said. If you think that God only brings judgment on a nation in covenant with him, listen to what he said in Jeremiah 25. Verse 29, and this comes after he lists all these nations, all these pagan nations. And then he says this in verse 20 in chapter 25, verse 29 of Jeremiah. He says, for I am already bringing disaster on the city that bears my name. So how could you possibly go unpunished? You will not go unpunished for I am summoning a sword against all the inhabitants of the earth. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. The same is true today. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven where Jesus is sitting on his throne as king. This woe from Isaiah, this warning from Jeremiah applies to any nation, America, Canada, any country where iniquitous decrees are being enforced. God says in Jeremiah 25, 29, How can you escape pagan nation if I'm starting my judgment with my people? And the way this is presented is that it would be the opposite. Well, God's not going to judge the pagan nations because they're not required to obey his law. They're not in covenant with him. They're not required to follow his standards. God will judge his people, Israel, because they're in covenant with God, but the pagan nations aren't expected to obey God's law. That is not what the Bible teaches. God says, I'm beginning with Israel, then how in the world can you expect to escape judgment? God holds all nations to account for obeying his law. I mean, one of the most, one of the verses that's thrown around so much during election time, which we should think about it all the time, is righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. Now, folks, let me ask you, what is sin? What is sin? As the catechism puts it, as my children know, sin is a transgression of the law. Of course, barring that language from 1 John. And what is righteousness but conformity to God's law? So this proverb, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people, is saying that if you disregard God's law, if you sin, because sin is transgressing the law, sin is not some nebulous concept. Well, it's just... If you're just kind of sinful in general, uh, your nation's going to be, uh, you know, you'll bring disgrace to your people. Sin is specifically transgressing God's law. So if you transgress and disregard God's law, it's a disgrace to any people, not simply Israel, a nation, quote unquote, in covenant with God. Any nation that sins, that disregards God's law, is bringing disgrace and judgment on themselves. God made it very clear, judgment starting with Israel but it's coming to you, pagan nation. And righteousness, of course, exalts any nation, any nation that adheres to God's law to be exalted. The moral law of God is meant to be obeyed by all people. Remember in the the, uh, the 1689, you have it in your hand out there. It says that justified persons, which are Christians, those who are justified by faith, or not, all people are required to obey the moral law of God. Which leads to our next and final point, number three. Civil rulers, in this sense, are in covenant with God, as are all people, in the sense that their complete obedience is required. Very important point. As we read chapter 19, verse 1 of the London Baptist Confession, says that all of Adam's posterity... That's all of Adam's descendants. That's you, me, everyone in this, in this planet. All of Adam's posterity is bound or required to personal, entire, exact, and perpetual obedience to God's law. This is why uh, we believe that as Reformed Christians, right, anyone who does not find forgiveness in Christ will be judged for their sins because all people are required to obey God's law. So who does God require to obey his law? 
All people, whether you're justified, that means that's another term for a Christian, or whether you're not a Christian. And for those, you know, the confession, there's so many great things in the confession, but it says later that neither doth Christ in the gospel any way dissolve, but much strengthen this obligation. So becoming a Christian doesn't lessen our responsibility to obey God's law. It strengthens it. It gives us the ability and the power to do it. So this is not about being justified by the law. This is not about uh, earning our way to heaven by the law. Anyone who says that has completely misunderstood the position. This is basic Christianity. God's law is required of all people. Everyone is required to follow God's law. You know, it's not simply the confession that answers this question, who is required to obey God's law. Paul answers it in Acts Acts 17.30 when he says, God now commands all people, who? All people, everywhere, where? Everywhere, to repent. To repent. So all people are required to repent, which repentance is a change of mind, a turning from sin, and sin is a transgression of the law. So all people are required to stop breaking God's law and start walking in righteousness. Now, I want to turn to Romans chapter 8 very briefly, because I want to tie together our Reformed worldview. Because what often happens with this, these concepts, we, we have certain aspects of our worldview that don't fit with the rest of our worldview. And I think that's a, a very important test for anyone's position on matters like this. Romans chapter 8, verse 7 says this, The mindset of the flesh is hostile to God, because it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it is unable to do so. It is unable to do so, okay? It does not submit to God's law. So this is the mindset of the flesh. This is a, a, an unregenerate person. doesn't submit to God's law. It's unable to do so. Now, as a Reformed Christian, and I believe that a biblical Christian, I recognize, and we recognize, if we are consistent with our theology, that a man is unable to submit to God's law, but that inability is a culpable inability based on his sin. He cannot use that as an excuse. He cannot use his inability to follow God's law as an excuse for his sin. That inability is based on his sinfulness. He cannot submit to God's law. He will not submit to God's law. He does not want to submit to God's law. He hates God's law. This is, of course, the Reformed and, I believe, biblical understanding of the unregenerate man. That man is hostile to God and his law by nature as a sinner, does not lessen his responsibility to obey God. Now, of course, today I can't get into the defense of that position from Scripture in the Reformed view against the Arminian error, which would say, uh, you know, man is able to choose good on his own. Um, This is not the time for that message. Of course, I stand on the biblical truth that man is unable because of his sin, and yet he's responsible for that sin. But the point here is that all people, whatever their station in life, are required to obey God's law. If you are a young child, even if you are not a Christian, you know what? God requires you to repent and follow his law. You are to honor your parents and obey, of course, not in matters of sin, but you are to honor your parents and obey. You are to obey God's law, even if you're not a Christian. If you are a wife, even if you're not a Christian, you're required to repent and obey God's law. You are to submit to your husband with respect, of course, not in matters of sin, But you are to follow God's law. If you are a businessman, even if you're not a Christian, God requires you to obey his law. You are to conduct your affairs with honesty and integrity. Just go read the book of Proverbs. We understand that this repentance and obedience will only come through Christ and the gospel. Again, justification, regeneration, salvation are all grace by the grace of God through Christ. But that does not lessen the requirement. In fact, When we fail to make the demands that God places on all people clear, when we fail to make clear that God requires all people to obey his law, we are actually doing a disservice to the gospel for two reasons. Number one, the law shows people their need for Christ. So if we don't preach, if I don't preach that all people, child, wife, husband, business person, civil ruler, are required to follow God's law, then I'm not showing them their need for Christ. If I'm not preaching to the child... God's law says, obey your parents. They won't see their sin. If I'm not preaching to the business person, God's law says you should have integrity and honesty in your dealings. You're not going to be confronted with their sin. If I don't preach to the civil ruler, God's law says this is how you must rule. They're not going to see their sin. That's number one. And number two, related to that, we're not helping people think through the cost of discipleship. Jesus 
demands that we obey God's law. The confession rightly says Christ in the gospel doesn't lessen our requirement to obey God's law. If anything, it strengthens it. Of course, Jesus said, and we talked about this two weeks, if you love me, you will keep my commands. So if we don't preach the law to people and whatever station of life they're in, we are not helping them think through the cost of discipleship because following Christ, they will be required, as all people are, to follow God's law. Now, let's apply this to the civil ruler because here's the objection. All right, listen to the objection. The requirements for civil rulers to fear God and love the truth only apply to the government of a nation in covenant with God. The objection goes that since civil rulers from pagan nations are not in covenant with God, therefore they're not required to govern according to God's revealed law word in the Old and New Testament. They're not required to fear God and rule justly according to his law word. So any requirements that we elect people like that is is void because these people aren't required to do that. I think that objection uh, is false. However, um, so that's the objection but the point very clearly is that all people are required to follow God's law. So if you are a civil ruler, even if you are not a Christian, guess what? Just like if you're a child, not a Christian, or a wife, not a Christian, or a husband, not a Christian, if you're a civil ruler and not a Christian, as I mentioned, God requires you to follow his law. The moral law of God applies to all people everywhere, including civil rulers. And as I mentioned, I'll say it again, societal injustice was not unique to Old Testament Israel. Injustice unrighteousness, oppression, murder, the shedding of innocent blood, theft, kidnapping, rape, adultery are not unique to Old Testament Israel. Those are moral issues, and the punishment for those crimes are moral issues that should be addressed by civil rulers. Now I want to answer a couple of these objections and I'm, I'm, as we wrap up here. This is another objection to the position I'm saying. It goes like this. Well then, are you saying that pagan civil governments shouldn't have governments? Because they're not ruling according to God's law? Or what about governments that uh, exist before the gospel reached them? Or even in some nations now where the gospel hasn't gone. Aren't these governments general blessings to the people? Isn't government like marriage and family uh, a common grace? And so this objection would contend that with what I'm saying, that all governments and all civil rulers should obey God's law, The objection goes that I'm, in effect, depriving the world of a major mechanism by which crime is restrained. So the argument would go that, according to my logic, pagan governments shouldn't exist because they are not following God's law. And therefore, the objection goes, if I'm consistent, I should say marriage and family should not exist either for pagans because the argument states that marriage, family, and government were all established pre-Mosaic law. So I know it's, it's a lot there, but the objection is, if I'm contending that Civil rulers are required to follow God's law. That means that those civil rulers and those governments that don't shouldn't exist, and I'm depriving uh, this common grace of God to unbelievers. This is very important, and this is where I think it shows very clearly the importance of being consistent and applying our biblical worldview to all of life. So first of all, God's law has always existed because it is a reflection of his character. The civil penalties that are in view today are applications of the eternal eternal moral law and therefore always apply. Okay, that's my foundation. But here is my answer to the objection that non-Christian governments shouldn't have governments. Should a non-Christian government, uh, should should a non-Christian nation not have government? No, but they should have Christian governments. They should repent and obey God's law. It's very simple. All men everywhere are required to repent and obey King Jesus. Look, did did Hitler's Nazi government provide a lot of good services and common grace for the citizens? Absolutely. I'm sure there were a lot of things that benefited the average German citizen under Hitler's Germany, Hitler's Nazi government. But what would a civil ruler in Hitler's government have done if he became a Christian? He should repent of all sin and rule according to God's law, even if it costs him his life. The argument kind of goes like this. Should a non-Christian husband end his marriage because God requires marriage to follow his law? No, but he should become a Christian husband. God requires all husbands to be Christian husbands. Do we believe that? If we don't believe that, then we don't believe that God calls all people everywhere to repent. If God calls all people everywhere to repent and all people are required to obey God's word, then every husband is required to be a Christian husband. Every wife is required to be a Christian wife. 
Every child is required to be a Christian child. Every civil ruler is required by God to be a Christian civil ruler. We are being inconsistent if we say all men need to repent. We're all in need of sin and we cannot please God apart from a right relationship with Christ. If we're not in Christ, all we do is sin. This is true from biblical and reformed faith. This is true. Everything we do is sin if it's not done according to God's word and for God's glory. We're inconsistent if we say all those things which are true and then we say, well, pagan civil rulers are not required to repent immediately and rule according to God's law. That's inconsistent. Or if we say, hey, everyone's required to obey Christ and repent, but married couples, since married couples, since they're in a sin-restraining institution, are not required to repent of conducting their marriage on unbiblical terms. Every marriage between non-Christians, just like everything that any non-Christian does, if we believe in the doctrine of total depravity, it's marred by sin, it's sinful through and through, it cannot be done to please God for the glory of God according to his word. The solution is not to end the marriage, the solution is to repent and become a Christian. If you're not a Christian, you are required to repent right now. If you're not a Christian father, you are required to, you are required to repent right now. If you're not a Christian husband, you are required to repent right now. If you're not a Christian wife, you're required to repent right now. If you're not a Christian civil ruler, you are required to repent right now and obey Jesus. It's rather simple. Again, Reformed Christians, we accurately make these claims that apart from regeneration, everything we do is sinful because it is done from a heart that, that, uh, that doesn't love God. But then we're not consistent. And we would hint at the fact that an unregenerate father can parent righteously or that a civil ruler can rule righteously. He can't. You can't do anything righteously if you don't submit to God first through Christ. It is impossible. Now, can God use that evil for good? People say, well, God uses pagan governments to restrain some sin. He uses it for good. Can God do that? Of course he can. Of course God can use evil for good. Does that mean we endorse disobedience on any level? May God forbid. Therefore, the solution isn't to say, well, all governments should cease existing if they're not Christian. The solution is that everyone repents and believes in Jesus right now. Just because something is a common grace and that God can use evil for good does not in any way lessen the demands of God's law. All children, not just Christian children, are required to obey God's law. All husbands, not just Christian husbands, are required to obey God's law. All rulers not just Christian rulers, are required to obey God's law. So, we have to understand this, folks. We have to understand. If we don't, nothing in our theology makes sense. If we don't understand that God requires all people to repent immediately, follow his law, if we don't understand that everyone's required to be a Christian, then the command to repent doesn't make sense. The doctrine of hell doesn't make sense. None of this stuff makes sense if God doesn't require all people to follow his law. Again, I believe this is the only position that is consistent. And that's why one of the reasons I adhere to it, it actually applies the concept that all men need to repent to every area of life. I'm not being consistent if I say God requires everyone to repent, but he doesn't require civil rulers of pagan nations to repent because they're not in covenant with him. That's not consistent. I'm consistent if I understand that God calls all people everywhere to repent, and then that truth can be applied to every area of life. That is a consistent position. The fact that God can use something for a grace does not mean that those people, that institution, should not immediately repent and obey God. In summary, or in conclusion, the civil ruler is God's avenger commissioned by God for a very specific purpose. He is not free to go rogue and rule according to his humanistic law. He is God's servant. And because God's law was always meant for all people, the requirements found in God's law are not lessened because someone doesn't want to obey them. Essentially to say that pagan nations are not required to follow God's law because they're not in covenant with God is basically saying that the only people who uh, need to follow God's law are those who want to follow God's law. It's absurdity. 
God requires every single person to follow his law. And my position is consistent with that in saying every pagan nation should follow God's law. And I believe every Christian should, if they're given the opportunity, select righteous men who will follow God's law. Now, in a sinful world, can God use an evil situation to bring about good? Of course he can. God can use an evil civil government to achieve some good. God can use an evil person, right? If we're not in Christ, we understand we are all evil and sinful. God can use an evil and sinful father and mother to bring some blessings to a family. But that doesn't change the fact that we are all required to be Christian. We're all required to repent and believe in Jesus. The Apostle Paul clearly reminds us that all people everywhere are required to repent of sin, which is a transgression of the law, and live according to God's law. The civil ruler, the avenger of God, is no exception to that truth. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the richness of it. And there's so much that we could consider and should consider. I pray, Lord, that we would think about the truths that we have um, seen today in your word, how we are all required to obey you. From the highest to the lowest, uh, as far as societal positions go, everyone is required to follow your law. And we know, Lord, that only through the gospel can that uh, obedience be brought about. But we know it doesn't lessen the requirement. And that's why the apostles went forth. We thank you for their willingness to proclaim the need for everyone to repent and obey the Lord Jesus. I thank you for our King, our Savior, our Mediator. We pray, Lord, that we would be faithful to you and live according to your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.